Welcome to the first episode of A Story of Us. Mackie and I are back and ready to talk about migration. We're so glad you're joining us. We've got a great series planned. We want to give you an overview of the different ways we think and talk about migration and tie in some real-world applications that might be familiar to you. Like we said in the intro episode, anthropology is broken down into four subfields, cultural anthropology, biological anthropology, archaeology, and linguistics. Each of these subfields has its own way of studying anthropology and at looking at migration. So we should probably introduce ourselves a little bit more, though, and explain which of these subfields we fall into. I'm Mackie O'Hara. I'm a biological anthropologist who studies our human ancestors. I use fossilized teeth to study the history of our growth and development. And I'm Alex Wilkins. So like Mackie, I'm also a biological anthropologist, but I study something completely different. I'm a primatologist, which means I study non-human primates, so apes and monkeys, and I study their feeding and nutrition. We're both biological anthropologists, but as you can tell already, anthropology is a really diverse field. And we've only just begun to show you how diverse it really is. But getting back to the podcast, the series is all about migration, and you probably know at least a little bit about migration because it's happening all around us. Yeah, right now, probably the most well-known migration is the refugee crisis coming out of Syria. The news is full of stories about the refugees, their struggles getting out of Syria, through Europe, and where to, the, to where they're relocating. The war has left a lot of this country devastated, which has forced thousands of people to flee. Unfortunately, this is a fairly common side effect of war. But something you may not think about is resource security. So even if your home is safe and your city isn't being attacked, war often cuts off normal supplies of food, water, and fuel. If there's no food or sustainable job opportunities or things like that, you might be forced to move just to survive. And even after you move, the countries that you're trying to get into may not let you in or even pass through them. That's a good point. So at one point last summer, neighboring countries, Macedonia and Slovenia, closed their borders to prevent Syrian refugees from crossing. And even without border controls, refugees may feel encouraged or discouraged from entering certain countries based on the comments of prominent people. Again, we saw this with the Syrian refugees. Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, vowed to keep Germany's open-door policy for the Syrian refugees even after the terrorist attacks in Europe this summer. On the other hand, Donald Trump compared Syrian refugees to the Trojan horse, saying that terrorists would come in hiding amongst the rest. Okay, but President Obama said that slamming the door in their faces would be a betrayal of our American values. We say, give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. While Donald Trump has been anti-immigrant throughout his campaign, this country was founded by immigrants. Yeah, that's a really interesting problem, actually. So in one of our interview episodes that we'll do later, you're going to hear about the public perception of immigrants and how they adapt to their surroundings. Studying the way people see migrants and refugees and the way they see themselves is something that cultural anthropologists study in great detail. So we've been talking a lot about how and why people move, and it's got me thinking about where people are actually moving to and from, right? So does a person have to move across a border for it to be called migration? And which borders are important? Country borders, county borders, city borders? So maybe thinking beyond this concept of borders might be a better way to address this question. 
because countries have often changed their borders, so it might be better to think about movement maybe between territories instead. That's a good point. There are many ways to define territories and homes. It's important to remember that humans have created these borders for every country, but the borders that we have are artificial and may not actually reflect geographic or cultural territories. Borders are constantly changing based on political situations. We should define what a home territory actually is, too. So I think this is a great time to start discussing some primate research. As primatologists, we call these areas or territories that primates move through home ranges. Let's start with an example of our own home ranges. My home range typically includes the space between my house and the OSU campus. Uh, it would probably also include the grocery store. That's the area you cover on a regular basis and it has well-defined boundaries. My home range is pretty similar. I go from Ohio State campus to my house and I also go to the grocery store. <laughs> I think my home range is a little bit larger than yours because I drive from my house to campus and you usually walk, right? Well, last year I walked actually, but I might drive this year because my new apartment is a little too far from campus to walk consistently. So between last year and this year, your home range shifted a little bit because you moved to a different apartment. Yeah, most of the area is the same because Ohio State campus didn't move and it takes a big chunk of my home range, but it definitely changed. I go to a different grocery store now and a different gym. So would you consider this moving from one apartment to another to be an example of migration? Not really. I would say moving to a new house and shifting your home range is an example of more regular mobility. In my life, an example of migration would be when I moved up from North Carolina to Ohio to come to OSU for grad school. There was zero overlap in my North Carolina home range and my Ohio home range. That's a good point. I migrated from Arkansas to Ohio for the same reason, for grad school. Um, and monkeys and apes also have home ranges and can migrate, just like us. Oh, absolutely. And as our closest relatives, primates give us a good model to better understand all sorts of human behaviors. They help us understand the history of humans as biological species. We'll talk about this more in depth in a few weeks, but primates move in all sorts of ways based on different behaviors. I think primates have different motivations sometimes for moving or migrating than humans do. I mean, they don't need jobs. They don't have to move to go to grad mm -hmm. school or anything yeah. like that. Uh, but there are some motivations that are similar. So like humans, primates choose to move to get different or new food resources, just like we have to move grocery stores when we move apartments. Oh yeah, so in order for primates to find food and water, and actually also to stay away from predators, something we don't have to think about, they have to move throughout the day. That's it's true. In my master's thesis, I was studying the teeth of a primate who slept right next to a river every night, but in order to get to their food, they had to walk nearly two kilometers away from the river every morning, but they moved that distance back and forth every day. So it's very clear what the benefits of moving are, so to get things like food and water, but for primates, moving takes up a lot of energy and, and it can be dangerous. There are very clear trade-offs for primate movement that we know about. So wouldn't there be some potential downsides for human movement as well? The benefits of migrating have to outweigh the costs. If you're choosing between a job in Ohio and one in China, the one in China has to pay a lot more money to make you move there. We'll talk about this cost-benefit analysis and risk assessment in our next few episodes because it's a really key factor to migration. But as a quick example of cost-benefit analysis, Herd animals like reindeer move to areas with large amounts of food 
by season. So predators like wolves or even humans will follow the herds and feed off of them. That's true. In that case, the benefit of following the herds pays off because you have a constant supply of food if you eat the reindeer. Uh, and we know that humans have been following herds like reindeer for hundreds of thousands of years. There's even a theory that human ancestors left Africa more than 1.5 million years ago to follow herds. It's probably safe to say that migration is something that has been happening since then. And we'll come back to the out of Africa hypothesis that Mackie just mentioned more towards the end of the series. I can't wait to get to that episode. Like we've said, humans have been moving forever. We've managed to populate every continent and some really remote, brutal environments. Let's talk a little bit about how and why that happened. Some of that might be better categorized as slow territorial expansion. Yeah, as populations get bigger and people spread out, the territory that they occupy will inevitably expand. A really great example of this is the Roman Empire. As the Romans conquered new territories, they brought new people and new ideas with them. So some people in the conquered areas stayed and were incorporated into the Roman Empire, but others were pushed out or fled the area. We know this because we can track their paths with artifacts like coins, pottery, and jewelry. Different cultures have distinct styles that can be tracked across space and time. Archaeologists study the stylistic changes in those artifacts. Think about the things that you drop every day. A penny here, maybe a hairband there. I know that I drop a lot of bobby pins. Archaeologists find all of this stuff later and try to figure out why they dropped it and who it belonged to. With currency, it's kind of easy sometimes. Americans drop U.S. coins while Europeans might drop euros. Let's talk a little bit about how migration brings new people and new ideas into areas because anthropologists use those things to study the migration in the past. Sometimes it's the new ideas that cause the migration, like the Puritans out of England. They left England because of religious persecution and migrated to the New World. And they brought all kinds of stuff with them, <laughs> including themselves. We know the Puritans moved to America because we have the historical records. But by excavating artifacts, archaeologists can add more details about the daily lives of those people. Based on the location, condition, and age of these artifacts, archaeologists can add more details to the historical records. So the official definition of an artifact is an object of material culture, and this includes anything modified by humans. And I mean anything. Even the landscape itself can be considered an artifact. Something like a dam is actually an artifact as well. When people build dams, they affect the water and the land around them, and as well as plants and animals that they raise and consume. Sometimes, though, the only evidence that archaeologists have is a skeleton, which can be very informative, actually. People shape their environments, but the environment also leaves marks on the skeleton. Bioarchaeologists can discover where a person came from and what types of animals or plants they were eating. They do this by analyzing the minerals in a skeleton's teeth and bones. And these minerals come from the water and food sources from their environment. Although bones remodel throughout your life and acquire the mineral composition from your new home, your tooth enamel actually doesn't change. So this enamel will always reflect the place where you lived as a child. And what this means is we can analyze smaller scale migrations over the course of a person's lifetime. If we wanted to look at larger scale migration though, we could use DNA analysis. We can track different markers in DNA to your ancestors to figure out where they may have come from. Understanding the ancestral origins of a population can also be used in modern situations as well. For example, you've probably all 
seen some kind of crime show like Bones or CSI, forensic anthropologists, like the ones in these shows, work in the medical legal context to identify unknown individuals. These shows usually focus almost exclusively on murder victims, but the field of forensic anthropology is much broader than that. Uh, For example, some forensic anthropologists have to identify individuals that died trying to cross the U.S.-Mexican border. In some places on this border, people try to walk 100 miles before reaching a source of water and safety, and sometimes in 110-degree weather. They are prone to dehydration, heat exhaustion, and even death. Nearly 200 bodies are found every year in the Sonoran Desert between Mexico and Arizona alone. It's the job of forensic anthropologists to identify every one of those bodies and return them to their home countries and families. The Reuniting Families Project is run by forensic anthropologists in Texas with the goal of identifying these people and by using some of the physical and chemical markers in the body that we've talked about. The dangers of crossing the desert demonstrate an extreme example of what people will go through to migrate and also why. We want to give you a sense of the different motivations and consequences of migration. So next time, you'll hear from two cultural anthropologists who will talk in depth about their work with refugees and migrants from Central Asia and Africa. So for now, that wraps up our episode. But in the meantime, you can subscribe to the podcast and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at A Story of Us OSU. Or you can also check out the website, anthropology.osu.edu. And leave us a review on iTunes. The more reviews we have, the easier it is for people to find the show. We hope you join us next time as we continue to explore a story of us, our humanity, history, and department.